start. Be Real is presented by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means you can paint and write, design and write, and make a film and write. You can also just write. Look for their faculty member Leslie Carroll Roberts' critically acclaimed Here is Where I Walk, Episodes from a Life in the Forest, out now from University of Nevada Press, and Adam Nemetz, We Can Save Us All, from Unnamed Press. For more information, power on your computer and visit cca.edu slash writing MFA. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, and genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. My friend, how you holding up? Um, I'm doing okay. My beard's getting a little bushy. What do you think? I think it looks Are you great. you into it? I am quite nice, into man. it, yeah. That's great. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what I'm working that's on. New, that's what's new with you. Just follicles um, doing their thing. Yeah, watching some TV, watching some movies. Downloaded that Quibi. Did you? How's that? I watched the first uh, six minutes of that Christoph Waltz, Liam Hemsworth thing. I watched also an episode of the Chrissy Teigen, like Judge Judy thing. I don't know what you're doing. What a weird time where like I have no idea what you're describing, but I'm like, yeah, of course. Chrissy Teigen, Judge Judy. I bet that exists. Who is your favorite, is Judy your favorite TV judge character? I was always like a Mathis guy. Greg Mathis, me too. He was a really good judge. He he was fair, firm. He knew the law as well or slightly better than I did. Yeah, I would agree with all those statements. <laughs> Certainly a cut above Judge Joe Brown. Um, None of this relates to what we're doing if you were to ask me what i was doing i would say watching barbara streisand movies because that's the topic of today's podcast we were looking for hooks it's a weird time to come up with hooks for a movie podcast because there are no movies um but one of the most recent criterion releases is 1991's prince of tides a movie that barbara streisand directed and then she also has a has a b-day coming up at the end of the month and i think is generally sort of an unexplored figure um by people of our generation and especially so far as like her or an tourist read of barbara streisand might be concerned so i was excited to go all in, go all in on this one absolutely yeah she has sort of a strange role in my life chance mm-hmm. and we got into this a little bit via text but you did not know this about me no um when I was a child, one of my most watched VHS tapes was 1994's Barbara Streisand, The Concert. Okay. Uh, the Concert? Pref- the Concert. Wow. Um, what hooked you in such a way? I don't know what it was. There was just something so, I don't know, like iconic about 
I mean, if you look at the cover of the VHS tape too, it's just, there's something about it where she sort of glows. She in silhouette? Kind of. She has like a black curtain behind her. Okay. It's really good, but it's such a goofy thing. My mom was making fun of me the other night when I was, we were talking about this because when I was a kid, she used to go and like get her hair cut and that process would take like the better part of an hour. So I would like hang out in the waiting area, like watching my Barbara Streisand, the concert tape, like in public as if it were like Wait, a weird, normal thing to do. You would bring the VHS to the salon and they would put it on the salon TV for you? Yes. That is very weird. I don't think I've it ever done anything weird. as weird as that in my entire life. Yeah. It's something I pried loose and should probably address in therapy in the coming <laughs> sessions, but it um, is something about me. So I have like this weird affection yeah. for Barbara Streisand, you know, and the fact that she represents a certain like archetypal, like Jewish matriarch character, mm-hmm. just like in culture. So there's that too. Yeah. I am champing at the bit to hear your perspective on this. Um, but yeah, I think this is, she's, she is a funny figure, a funny girl, if you will. And I may, I may nice. not. Um, because like, uh, you know that she is very, very, very famous, like has sold, like is way up there on just like most records sold by an artist globally ever. <laughs> um, right. She's an EGOT too. There you go. Um, a quadruple threat, a threat in all these. Th- Yentl, we should say, we'll just give out the the crazy groundbreaking fact now. 1983's Yentl, a movie we're going to talk about today, along with Prince of Tides and The Mirror Has Two Faces. Yentl is the first movie, major Hollywood movie ever to be directed, produced, written, and star a woman. So it's a totally groundbreaking thing that she did for movies that I think are relatively forgotten by a lot of people. Get ready for me, love, cause I'm a comer. I simply gotta march, my heart's a drummer. Don't bring around a cloud of rain on my parade. I'm gonna live. So, but her career starts on the stage and like with her singing chops. And you can go back to her becoming a star in like the late 60s, early 70s with Funny Girl and Hello Dolly and What's Up Doc and Owl and the Pussycat. Um, what else am I missing there? Well, she sort of made her bones in this now no longer existent like nightclub circuit. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, simultaneously became a star of stage, like small stage, but then also these like massively successful records. Yeah. And kind of bridges this um gap that like no longer really exists or i should say it's a gap and a bridge that no longer exists between like show tunes and pop um and so right yeah she reaches this point where she's like a like a stagey sort of performer but um doesn't act super stagey in movies i don't i don't think of her like a bet midler like every time bet midler is in a movie you're like she is playing to the back row every single with every single thing she does barbara streisand figured sure. out how to become a movie star I mean, she's just like sort of a star, period. She represents this idea of show business as this all-encompassing brand right. of doing everything. And I would argue, too, some of the choices she makes in her movies to highlight other talents of hers, i.e. her singing, are some of the more interesting, albeit weird, choices that the movies make. 
Another way to place her that I just thought of when you said that her talents are sort of all-encompassing, she's definitely like the heir to a Judy Garland type. And in fact, and of course, remakes A Star is Born in 1976, kind of updating that for um, changing definitions of pop and rock and movie stardom. Yeah. 50 studio albums, Chance. That's not inclu- That doesn't even include the VHS <laughs> tape that I was obsessed with. <laughs> That's an incredible number of studio albums. We're going to get into her directorial efforts today. And we start with Yentl, do we not? I mean, all roads lead to Yentl. I never thought they did. And then I watched it and it turned out that they did. Um, they did? <laughs> yeah, because that's where I ended up. <laughs> Amazing how that works. Um, had you seen any any of these movies? Yentl I had seen before okay. as a kid. Yeah. So Yentl is the story. So Barbara Streisand plays the titular Yentl, this sort of like put upon Jewish woman living in a shtetl at the turn of the 20th century and is sort of like the reverse Beauty and the Beast kind of thing where she all she wants to do is study and they like won't let her do it. Um, and then her father dies and it's either like marry or perish. And she decides she's going to do neither of those things. She's going to present now as a boy and go to yeshiva and do the continue the studying she had been doing in secret with her father, who's like who was a scholar. Uh, so then she ends up at this yeshiva, and it's we have a sort of tootsie situation with her and Mandy Patinkin playing the Jessica Lang role. And she just really at all costs wants to be a scholar of the Talmud. Yeah, she's fascinated by the Talmud. Uh, there's a, I mean, there are plenty of montages to establish her being into talking about the Torah and its, uh, you know, accessories. Right. Um, I like that you brought up Beauty and the Beast because I was going to do the same. I think one of the strong point. this movie just has very strong bones because it's such a classical structure that there were three scenes that reminded me of 90s Disney movies to come. There's the opening where it's established that she wants to be a reader in a place where women cannot be, which reminded me of Beauty and the Beast. Her singing to the sky for her deceased, Papa, Can You Hear Me, is very Lion King. And oh, her getting like lured into the, uh, the skinny dip um, is very Mulan. And that's not to say that any that Yentl like kicked off those movies or like or the vice versa, but we're just dealing with a lot of folktale, fairy tale, age old um, story structures. It really is just kind of like boring Mulan, isn't it? <laughs> if you take out all like the the defeat the Hun plot of sure. Mulan and replaced it with doing basic uh, studying at a yeshiva. A yeshiva worth fighting for, though. She was born into a time when the world of study belonged only to men. There's not a morning I begin without a thousand questions running through my mind. Gentle for the thousandth time, men and women have different obligations, I know, but don't ask why. But Yentl couldn't help herself. 
Her desire to learn was so great that to satisfy herself inside, she pretended to be a man outside. It's just incredible to me starting out that this like motion picture was made by this huge star and released to a general audience. Because going into it now, like, it's just so, like, it's so unbelievably concerned with Judaism. I mean, it's it's not quite like Passion of the Christ, you know, historical epic or something. But it, it's it's playing with the same reference points, only, like, understood by a certain group of people. Yes. This is the kind of movie, to put my cards on the table, that makes me Google the difference between the Torah and the Talmud. <laughs> Like I've got well, the Talmud is the commentary, right? Well, I learned that when I was just like, I have to know. I can't just like let this slide by without understanding, because like this, you're embedded in this movie into a very specific time and place and culture. And this movie doesn't get a ton into the actual nitty gritty of any Talmudic teachings or anything. I mean, they like in passing will discuss, you know, some different rabbis like arguing about certain like moral questions, but ultimately like that's done in montage and the real sort of central question that the movie is playing with in that Disney style that you mentioned is the question of can women like do the same things that men can do. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the things that I noticed right from the jump with the directing is that they had a good-sized budget. I'm seeing like $16 And she does a really nice job of bringing you into this world. Like we made the Beauty and the Beast reference, but the the Polish or Lithuanian village or wherever we are in Eastern Europe at the beginning, um, just kind of like the way you go around to like children running and bathing and the bookseller and the meats for sale really reminded me of, um, I mean, this is going to be a, this is going to be a high compliment, but it's like, it's something like the opening of the Godfather. There's like a lot of money. There's a lot of people. We're trying to bring you into a culture, whether it be, you know, 1930s Italian American or 1904 Polish Jews. But, um, yeah, it's 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 thorough and busy and immediately kind of interesting and maybe more interesting than some of the rest of the movie. Yeah, though no, it definitely has great production value and some really interesting cinematography. Like mm-hmm. the opening and closing shots are really fantastic bookends to they me. Are. Classically um, epic. Classically epic. But I have to say, going in pretty quickly, once we get beyond the premise we just discussed, once you get to the yeshiva, that central question of like, when are they going to figure out Takes it's Barbara Streisand? It's a long time. It's a really long time. And I thought it was closing in on the last like 15, 18 minutes of the movie. And I'm like, she hasn't revealed herself as a woman yet. Like that has to happen before the movie is over. How is it taking this long? Yeah. And then, yeah, there's the whole like act with the getting married to the Mandy Patinkin's girlfriend. Yeah. Hadass played by uh, Amy Irving. But this story is interesting though, because it's breaking down. So it's based on the Isaac Bisheva singer story, Yentl, the Yeshiva boy. Um, which is approximately the same story until the ending. Um, it is not like a love story. 
Hmm. really, the way Streisand interprets it, not to spoil either one of them. But this is the kind of case, too, where it almost, you wonder if there is enough, like, maybe at the source material. Like, you can you can sort of picture it, even if you haven't read it, how this story, reverse-engineered, looks like a short story with the acts about, okay, father dies, okay, go into the yeshiva, okay, you know, sort of becoming part of a society there and then reckoning with that and, you know, what the next chapter looks like as the climax and ending. But is that enough to support like a two hour and 13 half musical? I think the rhythm of it, unfortunately, is a little grating because she... So what happens is that most of the songs that Streisand vocalizes are presented to you as like happening inside Yentl's mind because of the... It makes sense because of the sort of repression of the atmosphere and the secret that she has to hide. And I think it's a great choice at the end to flip that and have her on camera be wailing to the heavens as they close in on Ellis Island. And it's almost like she's on, like already in New York City on a boat of people being like, we can't hear you do whatever you want. But she is in that sense free. But the rhythm Mm -hmm. on the way to getting there of just like her exiting a scene of acting and then very samey, like, what am I just feeling? Is That's like 20 times. Right. Well, the fact that the musical elements of it don't extend to the rest of the cast, you know, like you can and have Mandy a Patinkin pretty flimsy... And Mandy Patinkin can really sing. <laughs> Mandy Patinkin, like, it was incredible to me that he was cast in this role and wasn't asked to sing. Weird. It is very weird. And it's also weird to me that... You know, there is chemistry and a love story between these two characters, but like Manny Pating is also not in the movie for that much. Like there's a big stretch where he's absent, you know, two thirds of the way in. Yeah. So it's kind of kills it. I, I almost wanted either more music or less sort of like the maudlin musical drama of it. Well, so here I want to try to place her in time as a star turning toward directing and creative control. She's absolutely in the Eastwood Redford Beatty kind of school uh, between, you know, 75 and 85 of like, I'm taking over my movies because not only am I a star presence, but I'm interested in kind of like a co-authorship relationship. And also like one of the things with Streisand is nobody knows her best angle on screen like herself. Um, Right. Well, I want to have a conversation, too, about how she ends up comparing to, like, a Nora Ephron-type character. Okay. Because I I don't know that this one... I mean, she's very clearly interested in literature the way Ephron was. And I almost think Prince of Tides and The Mirror Has Two Faces could... You could tell me they were Nora Ephron movies, and I'd believe you. Mm. Um, She always casts herself as a character who's very interested in literature and intellect. Right. Oh, yeah, she's always sort of... But, I mean, that's what she should do. Uh, it's something similar. I was trying to think of a, a present-day comparison to her. And the closest I think I came up with was either, like, a Gwyneth Paltrow or a Reese Witherspoon, who, yeah. like, uses their brand to sort of support another brand. Mm-hmm. Like, Reese Witherspoon sort of having her her toes in both books and streaming and movies and adapting one for the other and recommending things that she ends up optioning yeah kinds of stuff and then Gwyneth Paltrow of course like her glamour going along with this these beauty products sure I think it could also be like if Beyonce's 
uh, forays into acting had worked to the extent sure. that like she got um, the creative control that she rightfully maintains over her music. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah if Austin Powers and Gold <laughs> Member had been had been Yentl, we would have been a Cadillac different place records. entirely. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, um, I mean, she's a fa- it's it is fascinating that she can uh, marshal these many areas of A and E to to make herself look great. And I don't mean that in like a um, I think a, a lot through a lot of years, like people. Especially, I think there's like William Goldman articles about this, where like oh, people say that she's a prima donna or whatever, which I think in retrospect, we can say like the things that male led industries accuse women of being difficult. Like we should take that with a grain of salt, but also like the end result is what the audience wants. Like you want, and in some sense, like we want these people to take control and give us the absolute best, most aggrandized versions of themselves. And she succeeds in doing it uh, in this movie for sure. Certainly. Yeah. I guess, like, my question then, you know, on the bigger sort of thematic level is, you know, how is a story like this a successful or not successful allegory about whatever thing she's trying to tell us is? Right. You know, like, the if we're going to, like, give it that Disney kind of morality at its center, it's, it is kind of a sad a sad movie that I mean, maybe sort of is grounded in reality while still being somewhat uplifting in that Tootsie sort of way. Yes. Um, I think there are some really interesting thematic reads, like especially when she's just sort of getting to watch um, Hadass interact with uh, Avigdor at the dinner for the first time. And she's sort of singing the song of like, look how, he looks at her and her back and sort of, I want to be that looking at Hadas, but I also just rejected that exact thing. I don't. And then she like weirdly gets to cast herself in both parts. Yes. Uh, yeah. That's, it is really interesting. There are some interesting moments in here. I just wonder like why, like I wanted to like this movie more than maybe I ended up. Right. Liking. Cause I think it has some interesting moments. I think it's a brilliant sequence when they, cut the song when he, she's at the tailor shop with the actual wedding ceremony mm-hmm. and sort of playing with the nature of being nervous about something, how it makes the time sort of move slower and faster at the same time. That's a good point. Like that's a really interesting sequence. Um, and the sequence too, where after the wedding, they kind of implicitly without saying it, decide not to consummate the marriage. Yeah. And just end up laughing. I agree. I also think the um, scene by the river where she just makes Manny P- naked Manny Patinkin look really hot, and the editing around like n- basically not seeing his dick is like very yep. creative and rapid fire. Um, I think if I want to come back to like the the thing that's sort of like sticking in our craws, though, I just don't think the tone of the movie works really well. And this is something you I think pops up in the other movies too. It's just like her sensibility is at once kind of zany and that's the Tootsie thing and very melodramatic. And that's the, I'm going to sing, you know, borderline chromatic opera after everything. And so like sometimes Yentl will like get into a situation where like uh, she's at the tailors and all of a sudden they're, you know, you know, measuring her chest and she's like, Oh no, no, don't, don't do that. And it's kind of like, 
why did you go to the tailors? Like, what did you think was going to happen? There's <laughs> sometimes the tones get weird. Maybe that's what bothers me the most is that like the Yentl characters, not maybe as sympathetic as you want them to be. Right. And like, yeah, there are moments like that of like, well, why did you, why did you do X if like you didn't want anyone to find out you were a, a woman? Right. It's a good point. It's a little, it's a little odd. Yeah. I, I had written down here like for. Anshul. The ways that Yentl slash Anshul impacts other characters is often very interesting. But Yentl, Anshul themselves doesn't have a lot of authentic personality. They're just kind of like running around waiting for the next bit of comedy and or weird emotional tragedy to happen. Yeah. It's also the kind of sensation, if I can be candid, where it's like, if you ever have, I mean, for me, a grandparent or something relaying a story from like a great grandparent (laughs) about living in the old country and this thing that kind of happened, which is sort of the whole Isaac Basheva singer thing. I just like, it's hard to imagine to root this world where, you know, women are so divided from men is just like so alien to me in terms of my own like thinking about both religion and society that it's like, I think this is a good point. I had a funny sensation watching this of um, like, I almost get a little giggly sometimes when I watch fundamentalism of a political or religious persuasion, like presented on screen where like when Stephen Hill, who plays like what the first DA from law and order (laughs) plays. Oh my God. I was going to, I was hoping you would get that reference. Hadassah's dad and kind of like closes the door on their marital bed for the first night. And he's just like, and nine months from now, a grandchild, I hope it's like nine months from tonight. It's like, but the it's not played for comedy, but it's so ridiculous. And I wonder if you, right. I wonder if you do have a responsibility in your period piece to make the sort of intellectual give and take of these ideas, especially someone who's studying at a yeshiva and debating like different ways to look at the Talmud all the time. Um, it should be more nuanced. I guess that's what I'm saying is like, the way you could relate to an audience, you know, for a an extended period of, of cultural time is by making this movie funny. Yeah. Like, that's what I don't quite get about maybe any, like, all three of these films is that, like, they're humorous in certain places like you're talking about. But for the most part, you know, Tootsie, I would call a comedy. I mean, it has, like, a drama plot. Yeah. But, like, it's a comedy. Um, Working Girl, like, also a comedy, but, like, with that kind of, like, 80s, you know, success trope. And this has that, but it seems to take itself so seriously that, yes, it becomes more a movie about religious fundamentalism than it is, like, kind of an unexpected, like, workplace comedy. And Yeah, and when she does do comedy, it, like, it stands out a lot as, like, almost like really slapsticky like there's a there i can't what i can't remember what character is but at one point she sort of like just like misses a handshake with someone it's like this is like something from the marx brothers and like 10 seconds from now you're gonna go back into (laughs) what am i feeling and it's also i gotta say not to critique like the literary merits of broadway lyrics um, but when we're talking about why Yentl is such a weird, um, kind of hard to get a beat on character, it's like, 
in the songs, when Yentl keeps asking, like, what am I feeling? It's like the whole you're horny for Mandy Patinkin. That was that whole scene. What do you mean? What are you feeling? We all just watched it. Well, it's funny because this movie in failing to commit to being a full on musical, it like has the non musical scene of her being like, I don't know what I'm feeling like as portrayed by X, like her getting a suit made or yeah. like her picking out books. And then she goes into the song about not knowing you're supposed to like replace that moment with the musical number when you can communicate right. that lack That's of. True. <laughs> That's what I sort of was frustrated. I think about in like just the structure of the movie. It's like, if you're going to, you know, you've seen watch Mamma Mia. Like that's what they do. You're always. I think this movie, if it should be closer to Mamma Mia, and then you have like a romping Orthodox Jewish musical. You have it's Mulan meets Mamma Mia in the Jewish early 20th century. I think that probably is better. Before <laughs> we turn to a rating. Um, can we give some credit to Mandy Patinkin for being so captivating and interesting in this movie? He's got kind of like a Billy Zane moment when he's like, are you a demon? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm sure we're going to talk about this more, but look at these three movies and the scenes that she puts, Streisand puts herself in with overreacting men. Um, Oh my God. So many of them. She, I want to say that they're like, I'm tempted to use the word like verbal sparring because there is sparring. I mean, in sure. in a larger narrative sense, she will always give as good as she gets. But she also kind of like will play a character who just like takes a pummeling from a man who is freaking, like emotional pummeling from a man who is freaking the fuck well, out. Well, like takes her down at that when he's trying to, to get her in the in the lake. Right, right. Let me ask you this. Who do you, I mean, I guess we can get into this with the other movies, but how do you think the chemistry with Patinkin stacks? I think Patinkin brings an element of like, I think he'd sleep with Anshul, you know? Oh, absolutely. I think there's that kind of, you know, by curiousness to his character that makes him like an even further wild card. And I don't think that's necessarily intended, but that's the definitely the read 40 years later. The scene of after the river thing where she's like had to be around him naked and sort of like even deny herself like eye contact and then goes back and for the only point in the movie like disrobes and kind of like not in a not in a graphic way, but in a very sensual way, like touches herself. Um, oh, yeah. It's a very... Between, uh, Pretty between pulls scene. on her ace bandage. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. There's yeah. a lot of very suggestive scenes. It's nicely done. For a what, PG movie? We'll talk more, of course, about the ways in which she makes herself look good as is her prerogative, but she also makes her co stars look really good. Um Yeah. Especially and when they're young and unknown, like Mandy Patinkin, when they are desperately in need of looking good and coming back like Nick Nolte, and when they're sort of like lost in the woods of their pre-Big Lebowski (laughs) career like Jeff Bridges, she does make them all very attractive. I think a lot of people cite, too, her role in the way they were as like pushing Robert Redford into like he can do any role and Mm. be in like those sort of more romantic drama spaces. Yeah. So makes sense. Yeah, she definitely pulls something out of her her co-stars. 
um, ultimately, though, in terms of this holding up, you know, in a 2020 viewing, I think this one, I'm going to give it a a good bad, I think. A, a charitable good bad. Yeah, I'm going to join you in that. Uh, I think there's a lot of merit to it. I think that uh, this is, you get to see that she's like a very capable director with some like very good areas of expertise. Uh, but no, it this, like a couple of these other ones, it's kind of boring. tough to get through. Yeah, it's just a little bit dull. It is a little bit dull. And it like takes a long time to make what are the obvious points. Yes. And like doesn't have enough fun like with the like the hangier scenes. Right. Like I wanted more school stuff or like, I want to see yeah. like, what does daily life look like with Hadass? Like if you're not having sex, like make that a little bit stranger. I've learned all I know about love from the women in my life. My daughters. My sister. My wife. My mother. The children blame me for everything. I spoke to Savannah's doctor. She wants one of us to go up there right away. Hello. I'm Dr. Lowenstein. What do you want from me? I, I need you to be her memory, Miss Anson. Fill in the missing details. <laughs> I spent my life trying to forget those missing details. Prince of Tides, 1991. What a year 1991 was. Is that true? I don't know. I didn't <laughs> do the research. Based on the Pat Conroy novel, this film follows a troubled man, Nick Nolte, playing Tom. Wingo. Tom Wingo. He is troubled. Uh, he retur- He goes to New York City to visit with his suicidal sister's psychiatrist, uh, Barbara Streisand's Lowenstein, about her family, their family history, and falls in love with the therapist in the process. Mm-hmm. Which I wasn't sure that that was going to happen for a while there. Let me ask you this, Chance. Yes. If it were to happen that any of Sarah's clients were suicidal or something, would she call in a sort of half-cocked brother from another state to to sort of like half-therapy, half-like steal pertinent information from so she could render better psychological advice i think you have to get to a certain like manhattan psychiatry status to be able to play that fast and loose with the ethics this movie is nominated for seven academy awards uh including best picture uh does not win any this yeah but But i think i would say like a forgotten like quote-unquote classic yes this is a class this is a classic like you look at what was nominated in a given year and you're like oh fuck prince of tides i've never seen that kind of a children of a lesser god or kiss of the spider woman situation (laughs) like you yeah did you ask your your mother if she'd seen this movie i feel like it's a movie that all of our mothers have probably seen she had seen it and she was like great book good book that's exactly what my mom said. She said she had seen it and that it was a great book. This, but this is... So you said before we got on the call, you were like, 
I can't I can't remember which of these movies you said this about. Maybe it was Prince of Tides, but like this is the kind of movie that truly will never be made again. Did you say that about this one? Well, that's all three of these movies. It's but all I think three I did, for sure. I did. I, I I definitely said it in the context of Prince of Tides. But again, it goes back to that question of genre because like movies like this will like have to be romantic comedies if they're going to get made and like not to spoil anything, but a romantic comedy cannot have a sexual trauma at its core. This is, this definitely belongs to a probably forever bygone era just because of the way both publishing and movies are going of just sort of like, you know, that great American or attempt to write the great American novel very late in the stage of the great American novel. And then that being made into a movie that they hope will make $60 million and be nominated for Oscars. I kept, I kept being like, this is so cider house rules, this fucking movie. It's very like uh, Forrest Gump too. Sure. Um, Just like that playful, like pan in on that, like charming, like lakefront or uh, like oceanfront house. Everyone lives like right on water. Yeah, it's so everything's so fabulous, even as poor as everybody is. But yeah, like Pat Conroy wrote the Great Santini. I mean, he along with sort of like you know Richard Russo. Um, oh, they're definitely of a of an ilk. Right. I was thinking. So this is you were like. I was trying to think, would a movie like this ever be made again? It would never be made with such middle brow commercial aspirations. It would be like wildlife. It would be like Paul Dano doing that. But that's so much more like artistically and not commercially interested. Because you could never, you could just not mount Prince of Tides today. No. I mean, the same way you probably couldn't mount Goodwill Hunting. Like, this is also in a similar space to that, I would say. Sure. Yeah, yeah in the idea of like therapy as like an interesting narrative thread, which I think, I mean, post whatever, post a lot of Nora Ephron and then like shows like in treatment or whatever. Like if I never see a psychiatrist, I guess the psychiatrist is the linking factor too. in a lot of like big little lies. Sopranos as well. Every, every single HBO show. HBO just loves therapy. Oh yeah. Interesting. Um, Let's talk about Nolte. So this part was originally this Southern sort of football coach was originally written for and cast to Don Johnson from Miami Vice, mm -hmm. who was dating Barbara Streisand at the time. But the movie took too long in pre-production that by the time they got a green lit, uh, they'd broken up. So they got Nick Nolte to do it. And I, it's interesting to see Nick Nolte as not like a creature living in a cave. <laughs> well, yes. And this is him coming back already though. Right. Cause he had this, he's That's got the seventies, eighties run with like sort of like North Dallas 40 and, uh, and 48 hours. But then this is hitting him in the, the Cape fear Lorenzo's oil, um, Prince of uh, Prince of Tides because he gets nominated for an Oscar. It's like it's him coming back. Um, so you're, it's very interesting to see like how much meat is left on the bone, and I think some. I think some too. I mean, he's a physically interesting performer. He's got a really interesting face. Yeah, and he he sort of has the ability to look like anyone. Like between him, like having his like like must up hair in his face to when he's at the party scene and he slicks it back and he like 
looks like a movie star from the 1930s. And like, it's, it's incredible how you can dress him up to play any sort of room and he can be a tough guy, but a sensitive guy. Like you kind of know that like a couple of tears are maybe going to be like his climax. And of course they are. Sure. Uh, but he 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 plays that that contrast I think really well between like charming tough American guy and like guy who really needs to be in therapy. One of the hardest times I've ever cried at a movie is him in Warrior when he relapses. You know that movie? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, but that's that's it's impossible watching a Nolte movie not to be like this guy's so fucked up at the same time as you're like this character is so fucked up. That's. That's part of the text at this point. I also think, if you'll permit me this joke, he kind of has like a picture of Dorian Gray go- thing going on with Robert Redford, but he's the picture. <laughs> he's definitely the picture. Um, so, okay, all jokes aside, I think he is really good in this movie. I think that Streisand makes him look really good. I also think his read on this character is so thorough as someone who just like deflects with humor and deflects and deflects and deflects. Um he like really pulls it off. You can tell that he has like thought a lot about how this guy should carry himself in seeming like sort of unsteady, even when things are going well, like it opens in a scene at the beach house with Blythe Danner and their three daughters. And he's like really being kind of like a 10, like a tender and semi attentive dad. But at the same time, you're like, what number beer is that that you're swinging around right now? Is it four? Is it six? What are you doing? Yeah. It's a good performance, I think. Um, what do we think of Streisand then, as the the therapist? I think she's really. I think she's also very good. Yeah, I think she's really good as sort of that, like the 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 notch before when Cool becomes Carrie Bradshaw. Yeah, it's. And it's like she's doing the New York thing where she still gets invited to the hip West Village parties, but then she's like listening to her fucking husband uh, not only switch the samples, but then play like a beautiful concerto in their all like black marble kitchen. Right. She's married to uh, a virtuoso violinist played by Jerome Crabb, who plays Dr. Charles Nichols in The Fugitive. Richard. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm American, and I saw Richard yesterday. <laughs> I'm an American doctor named Charles Nichols. <laughs> He's oh, hilarious. He's so good. Hilarious and bad in this movie. He's so bad good. <laughs> He's incredibly bad good. He is, I mean, the heir to I'm Pierce Brosnan in The Mirror yes. has... Yeah, two faces 100%. and Pierce Brosnan in a movie like uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. Yep, I'm with you. He's sort of the comically bad other guy that you want the woman not to be with. And when he plays um, what way down south in Dixie on the violin to kind of get Nolte's goat, you really do want Nolte to do what he ends up doing, which I don't know if we want to spoil that because <laughs> it's one of the best parts of the movie if you're going to watch this. I'm going to say I think the most compelling and also lamest maybe thing about this movie is the relationship between Nick Nolte and Jason Gould, who plays Barbara Streisand's son, Bernard, but is also but is her biological son, yeah. Jason. So when with he, Elliot Gould. When he's like, Mom, 
Stop trying to control me. He's just being Stop like, putting me in your movie, <laughs> Mom. I don't want to play football. Stop trying to direct me in this. Yeah, there's definitely oh, tension no. between between mother and son. Um, there are some... There's an unironic training sequence in both this movie and the next movie. That's true. Yeah. People getting in shape. Um, it's weird to me how at a distance Barbara Streisand is in this movie. I mean, I guess it makes sense if that is not her interest in starring in a movie, but I have the feeling that her interest is starring in a movie. Uh, and she gives a lot of real estate to Nick Nolte to like do his thing. Whereas she's very understated. I would say the majority of the film. I would agree. You, it really feels like a movie about Nolte's character coming to terms. And it is with the trauma of his childhood. Um, but believe me, in in none of these movies is there quite such a testament to one's own power and ability to heal as Nolte basically saving his life and the life of his family by looking at Barbara Streisand as some sort of like a spiritual savior, a mantra. <laughs> He's just... This this movie is part of a genre of films that I'll call the it'll take a good woman yes, movies. Yes, 100%. It's a good and, one of those, I think, though. And sure, it's a good one of those. But there's also literally a scene in this movie where Nick Nolte goes, you should smile more. <laughs> and she's like, what? And she he then forces her to look at her own reflection in a store window being like, it'd be beautiful if you just smiled more. <laughs> Oh like God. what are the politics of this movie like it's hard it's to an old movie. like is tom wingo a good dude doesn't streisand even says at the end like that's why i love you you're the kind of man who always goes back to his own family so you're sort of the terrain is already that of the you know the fucked up immoral person who just needs to worship taking a Barbara ride up streisand. to new york city yeah well it not only presents barbara streisand is this sort of you know, saint-like creature, but it also frames New York in this, like, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And if, like, you can figure your stuff out on this geographic vision quest, then, like, you're now rendered better. And, like, you don't know how things are in the deep south. (laughs) Well, that's... I wanted to ask you, like, what do you think... What is the point in American culture where that sort of regionalism was dispensed with. Like, for instance, her being, like, Jewish and from New York is not that important to the story, other than the fact that everyone brings it up constantly. Um, And it also gives her lines, like, the last line that they have together is her saying, like, I just need to find a nice Jewish boy. Right. And it's like, okay, Barbara. Yeah. The first... It's interesting, though, that... At every turn, I was expecting Nick Nolte to like get up on a table and sing that like Triangle Trade song from 1776 or something. <laughs> like it's sort of there's a, a certain charm for the South that doesn't seem terribly rooted in like actual Southern issues. Well, they're they're portrayed as this sort of like a extremely isolated family, right? They live on like an island created by the tide, which is where this comes from. So they do have this sort of um, like lost boys thing among like the three siblings. 
And then uh, I think the the parents must be so much more interesting in the book. Don't you think? Yeah. Because the mom is portrayed as, um, you know, the primary caretaker and having to inhabit the put-upon Southern housewife role, but also someone who, like, wants to write and, like, wants a lot of different things for the world and is actively looking for a way out. And then the dad is sort of, like, a classically abusive, unsuccessful drunk, but he's also, like, trying his hand at these, like, crazy schemes, um, which just seems like there's got to be 100 pages on both of those in the book that in the movie is boiled down to two not very compelling performances. Well, I thought it was pretty funny that one of his schemes is essentially being Joe Exotic. Exactly, yes. Which was incredible. But um, but didn't that I, so not jibe with like when you then talk to the man who seems like he has one brain cell and is like, I like to catch shrimp and hit my wife. And it's like, so <laughs> where's, where's this guy who like dreamt up this crazy tiger scheme? I'm not watching that guy. Yeah. I couldn't decide like what that scene was doing when they're all on the boat together, the family and then grown up uh, Tom. And he's like, Weird. dad, how you doing? Couldn't believe like, dad was still in the, the picture. Yeah. He's like, did you hear the Braves lost two nothing to the Cardinals? That's my emotional output for the day. <laughs> couple more things I wanted to point out because it's I think if you're looking at the strong points of Streisand's directing it is again how she gives actors including herself specific moments so like there's the moment in the beginning where like Nolte's taking a, a walk with his wife Blythe Danner and she's just like we need to talk about us ever since your brother Tom died like you haven't been intimate with me you haven't been emotionally available um, I don't know how you feel about me I don't know if you love me and he kind of like turns to her and like with this big like shitty grin is just like don't take it personal honey like I don't know how I feel about anything anymore and it's like a it's framed as like a very charming movie star moment but also the movie knows that like he's also said the most hurtful thing he possibly could in his repartee it's a great moment she captures um you gotta give a shout out to the vision behind the when they're across her desk in the therapist's office and her head is in the frame arguing and then they kind of do the predator bicep meme but like his head joins her in the frame you know what i'm talking about oh sure i didn't know must have not noticed that it's a great shot um and then him seeing her at the end where they know it's over she just looks like she lights herself as some combination of, uh, you know, an angel and a district attorney with early 90s shoulder pads. And she just looks amazing. Yes, she definitely strikes a very memorable visual image, I think, in this, like as what we will then consider therapists of a certain kind to look like for the next 20 years. It's the same suit that Lorraine Bracco puts on in The Sopranos. For sure. It's the same room, basically. It has the same amenities. Mm, uh, mm -hmm. I love her, like, her, like, pull-out coffee station that, like, comes oh. out of her her crown molding there. Nice apartment, too. Lots of good New York shots in this one. Yeah. It has that kind of, like, Mike Nichols on the street kind of feel to it. Right. <laughs> Maybe not the real street, but the street. Yeah. It has the second unit of a, Michael, of a Mike Nichols movie. <laughs> Well said. Um, yeah, I think this is by far the best of the three. Um, do I want to be nice or do I want to go with my heart? Do I want to be, should I be real on this one? Yeah. Well, I mean, do we want to talk about the like climactic scene? Oh, shit. 
Um, yes, but I suppose what what I would say about the climactic scene is that it might be the thing that seals my rating of good bad, which like I, it's it's long, it's tragic. There are a lot of moments I like. There are plenty of lines that, um, you know, made me giggle, but. I don't think I'll be coming back to this one in part because of the thing that like we want to unpack some real tough subject matter. Yeah. And it's totally insane too. Like not even, not even like cut and dry, like sexual assault. It's like sexual assault at gunpoint during an armed robbery. Does that feel a little bit um, like, I feel deus es machina would might be the wrong word, but like devil es machina or something. Um, yeah, it's like the most horrible thing you can think of. Because um, because there's like a word that the catatonic suicidal twin sister has said to Barbara Streisand um, that ends up being, spoilers for Prince of Tides, the name of the prison that the rapists escape from. But honestly, I feel like most literary and movie rules say that that thing is not what you think it is or there's some kind of twist and it's something that you've already seen laid out and it's not just these guys broke out of the prison and raped us, which is crazy. It's nuts. It comes from but nowhere. Like that would, it does come from nowhere and has not been like really established in how like magical and sort of, but like their, their world isn't that magical to begin with. Like they live in a shitty place and like the dad's shitty and the mom's like a little bit better, but not like a ton better. Right. And yeah, it really just feels like sort of trauma porn at that point of like all the horrible. It like It's like I don't – I want more in the present where it's a warmer movie about people and like the scars they bring with them in that sort of – I don't know, uh, that uh, as good as it gets kind of way. Mm -hmm. But then when it downshifts into, oh, this is all the cause of all the effect of sexual violence. It's, it's like a, it's a, it's an unwatchable thing. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's a good, I think it's a solid, good, bad. Right. Like another well-made, great production value movie with some great New York shots and some great, um, you know, placing the camera in famous restaurants kind of stuff. Maybe you want to read the book. Professor Gregory Larkin found meaning in mathematics. You think he's straight? Oh, yeah. He's too boring to be gay. But his relationships... Can I call you sometime? ...never added up. Sex ruins everything. I just want to share my life with someone. Someone I'm not sexually attracted to. Professor Rose Morgan understood the human heart. The question is, why do people want to fall in love when it can have such a short shelf life and be devastatingly painful? But longed for a storybook romance. Why? Because we all want passion in our lives and and romantic love. Hi. Oh, hi. Uh, I saw you pass by. Yeah, I was just passing by. All right. So 1996's The Mirror has not one chance, but two faces. This mirror has two faces or do all mirrors have two faces? Is the implication of the title of the previous movie that like his dad's the king of this tide island, thus making him the prince of tides? Is that ever explained in the movie? 
It's never fully explained in the movie. I think it has to do with this, I think an interesting textual switcheroo around, you know, which brother, which which sibling is the one with all the talent and the lack of self-belief that they all share. You know, everybody believes the other yeah. one's more interesting and better, which is a good dynamic. Good movie. This movie's title still scratching no. my head as to what that you, refers to. You rightfully compared it to Gone in 60 Seconds before we started. Like, it seems to make sense. Like, yes, those cars are fast. Yes, there are mirrors in this movie. But we don't we don't really pin it down. When I... So I used to work at a video store, as you know, Chance. Um, I do. And I remember this movie was, like, prominently outward facing in a certain corner of the comedy section. And I... Th- for some reason thought it was a Woody Allen movie with the setup of like there's parallel universes in the mirror, like reveals what's going on with Barbara Streisand, like in the other mirror. That doesn't seem that far fetched. That to me is the more marketable concept for this movie. I mean, in 1996, not in 2020, don't get me wrong. Well, here's the interesting thing with her career. So these are the only three movies she directs, right? She's not, After Yentl, she's kind of done starring in movies directed by other people up until she, presumably for some money and some laughs, takes the Meet the Fockers, Little Fockers uh, role as Ben Stiller's mom. Um, but she doesn't, make a, she doesn't make a movie between Prince of Tides and Mirror Has Two Faces. She's probably had to get ready for the concert. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think she's just taking a breather. Yeah. From the concert, right. which was her her audiovisual triumph. Yeah, that is certainly interesting why she only made... Like, what is she trying to tell us with only making these three movies about neurotic Jews? Well, but also very successful, ambitious, neurotic Jewish women. I think that like you get to a certain point in your sure. acting career... Um, and you can see it with Redford, Eastwood, and Beatty again, where like you hit a certain point where you've had a certain control, a certain juice, and like you don't really want to do stuff, or it takes a lot for you to give yourself back over to somebody else's creative vision, or especially somebody's just commercial vision. I think you're seeing the expiration here of unfortunately audiences like interest in her creativity, at least in the film space. Um, but then also kind of like I think. You're also seeing like the limits of maybe like what she's interested in. Cause this in its own sure. ways is a lot like the other two movies, a lot of similar dynamics, um, but not as good. Sure. Well, this to me feels like knockoff either Woody Allen or Nora Ephron, uh, which is, it's a very premisey. Yes. And oh the idea God. that, so here's a shy middle-aged mathematics professor played by Jeff Bridges. Uh, he enters into a romantic but non-physical relationship with an unlucky in love English professor colleague, Barbara Streisand. And is it even really that romantic? Well, it's kind of like that opening scene from When Harry Met Sally about men and women not being able to be friends sort of in reverse. Mm-hmm. It's like, let's say men and women can only be friends. It's the dating that they have trouble with. Right. Like That is the malady at the core of this movie is that this man like goes into a fugue state when he gets an erection. 
And it's true. He just he just he literally will give up professional triumph. He will give up relationships of any kind if he's sexually aroused. And it's nuts. So he then believes so I mean if that's your starting point, I mean what larger commentary are you going to be able to render here? In a, I, I agree with everything you just said, and in a similar, it has a similar problem to Yentl in the sense of like it's such a premise-driven movie of like two people make a contract to get married, but like never have any passion toward each other. Like what happens next? That's right. Surely we can do that in under two hours and ten minutes. Sure. What well, it feels very like Nancy Myers too, in the like set in the hallowed halls of Columbia Uni- right. University yes. in bustling New York City. <laughs> You know? Yeah, 100%. Here's, here's Greg. Here's Greg Larkin. Yeah, I mean, a lot of money in Prince of Tides and this. I mean, I guess Barbara Streisand's just living with Lauren Bacall, right. her mother. Her what a great... That's such a great piece of casting there. Did you notice that Lauren Bacall's like Hollywood headshot is sitting behind Lauren Bacall in shots of that. her at the kitchen table? That's nice. So good. I can't say I loved this performance, but I do I do think that it's like great. That's definitely like a being true to honoring your ancestors, you know, bringing somebody along into a into your movie. Uh was what she's doing for Lauren Bacall here. You have to get behind the Pierce Brosnan, though, right? Brosnan is so goddamn ridiculous because... Rose, no. <laughs> oh, no, Rose. <laughs> Another Billy Zane. Um, yeah, but for like then for 90% of this movie, you're like, why is Pierce Brosnan in this movie? And then again, really late. Like she, These movies do not unfold at the, nor- the clip they should unfold. There's like 50, there's like 14 minutes left in the movie, and can you tell I maybe looked at the timestamps like a little bit too much trying to get through them? <laughs> there's like 14 <laughs> minutes left in the movie when she like has her makeover and tries to hook up with Pierce Brosnan. Oh, when she has her grease how you doing stud moment? Yes. That's my favorite thing about this movie. I know you're poking at it pretty good, but I think this movie for its Streisandian runtime uh, at two hours and six minutes like is having more fun and more hang during the different episodes that i wasn't so i didn't hit pause as many times maybe on this one uh, because i was waiting for jeff bridges to do something absolutely insane or like some good banter between the two of them it's really interesting because for me, it was hard to figure out their chemistry at first. And I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way. Mm-hmm. It almost is like the movie does the thing the movie is trying to do on screen uh, too effectively in being like, oh, there's t- a man and a woman and they don't have chemistry. Like, what's compelling about that? <laughs> but sure. that then, to me, like becomes something oddly interesting about it to see that they're in these parallel lanes that like sometimes come pretty close but then like jar apart you know it was sort of interesting and then when they do of course hook up because it's a movie folks like whatever uh it is like oh this has to happen but at the same time when he aborts the the exchange they're having uh it is surprising. I guess I just didn't think that 
you know, in a in a lighter way, you are attempting to unravel what is at the heart of this complicated, hourly struggling man, Jeff Bridges, compared to Nick Nolte in the previous movie. Um, I just didn't think that what was at the heart of this guy was that interesting. Because, you know, like, so the speech where he kind of, like, lays out this plan, he's gone to... He's gone to see a class that she's taught and there's like a funny dynamic between them where he's like a terrible teacher and like all of his students are falling asleep and she is like doing stand up in like an eight minute scene where like she's just like when when you're in love. you. So hear- it's me, the <laughs> rabbi and my mother on the stage at the same time. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. And my mother says, when you're in love, you hear Puccini and then it like cuts to the class. And they're like, yeah! and they're just like standing ovation clapping Barbara for her. It's incredible. Stryson! Um, which is ridiculous. I mean, that's how I feel about her too. And forgivable. Um, but so later on, when he proposes the plan to get married but have little to no romantic affection between them, he kind of he just like reads he 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 takes her speech from the, that he witnessed from the class and was like all that stuff you said about love and the reason we're so interested in fairy tales and the flaws of fairy tales. I take them to mean that you said that lust, passion, and love are all like bullshit things that are sold to us. So let's go with my plan. So at that point though, isn't the read on his character though that like he's just oblivious and doesn't listen? Like how much could how much does he actually care about her? How much could he care? He's kind of I think he's just a little bit shitty in a more banal way than the movie thinks. Oh yeah. Well, he's definitely shitty. I think the movie knows that he's shitty, especially like when he sort of crumples in that one scene. Yeah. And she finally is like, fuck you guy. Right. Um, which feels very triumphant to me uh, in a way that, yeah, we've, it's an interesting Jeff Bridges role too, because you don't see him typically like without that much agency, like, and being so self unaware that it's kind of, you don't know where he's going to end up. Um, and he plays it for laughs here, but... There are definitely, like, moments uh, that are kind of hysterical and you wonder if they're self-aware or not, where, uh, you know, like, made over Barbara Streisand, who's gone from, you know, being sort of, like, mousy and must up and, like, oversized sweaters and misplaced hair extensions. And basically, at the end, she just looks like she looks in Prince of Tides. Um, but we're both Bridges and Brosnan do like a whoa and like their mouths are literally literally open for three four seconds at a time just like staring at her he does like a full-on awooga right (laughs) exactly that's the noise i should have thought of um but barbara streisand directed this movie so like you're telling people like when you look at me do the longest awooga you possibly can Right. There is something a little narcissistic about that whole enterprise. Oh, it's so funny. And I think it's funny, too, how just long the shot is that, like, totally objectifies her from, like, her hair all the way down to her high heels. Yeah. Incredibly long shot. She objectifies herself very well for the audience's pleasure. She does. Yeah. It's interesting to me, too, that... She's like in her 50s when she does this role. Oh, well, the other, yes. The other thing that she has in common with Redford and Eastwood is in being completely unashamed to play so, so much younger. How old do you think the Yentl character is supposed to be? 20? Well, that... Two? I mean, anywhere from like 14 to... (laughs) 
Like, who knows? Yeah, what's what's old maid age in uh, 1890s Latvia? I mean, in the story, it wouldn't surprise me if these are like 16 to 18-year-old boys. Yeah, Babs was 41 when she made that movie. Which is like... It's incredible. That's classic Redford narcissism, and I can't falter for it. I love that shit. I mean, she looks as good as Ronan Farrow does at 30 now, uh, at 42. So... Don't you think this is another movie, though, where the balance between very real pain and, like, supreme goofiness doesn't quite work itself out? Like, at one point, where you start to think the title's going to kick in, she is just weeping in a candle-lit mirror because she had this, like, zany comedy premise that she was, like, trying to work out with Jeff Bridges. Right. I don't know. I like that this one doesn't take itself so seriously. I like a movie she where I know going in a candlelit mirror there's while no. Marvin Hamlish makes it super sad. It's not like somebody breaks into her apartment and rapes her at the climax and then like the movie goes on. Like think if that had been the My god. I I I guess I I like knowing that that's not I guess not I don't coming. want that and you win. <laughs> Worst case scenario, the bookstore goes out of business. That's what I want from a romantic comedy, okay? Right. But you know I love that shit, man. And that is the reason that I think this one was more fun for me. And that I think, of the three at least, I enjoyed the most. I wanted to get on board with that because you told me that was coming. I just didn't find it to be, again, minus the rape. I didn't find it to be that much lighter. Like I just wanted it to be lighter, but like weirdly, like Jeff Bridges is just like collapsing in on himself by the end, like screaming at this girl in his class, like <laughs> you got a D in front of everyone, which is like horrible. Um, and she's like clearly got this like very kind of um, troubling, not that fun relationship with her mom. I don't think the Lauren Bacall relationship is very fun. Oh, I thought it was a ton of fun. Did you? It's the Jewish mother thing. Okay. Maybe I take that I too seriously. I love that this movie had the same character from uh, the Love You Eyes from Indiana Jones, yes. just for good measure. Yeah. But it this like ruins like his an, day instead of being a joke. It does. It gives him a boner. He wets himself <laughs> and he goes on to the next scene. And he puts an ad in the Such newspaper goofy... to avoid that happening ever again. Someone ugly, please. Weird. These erections, they're killing me. Such a weird thing. It is. No, it's its an aggregation of what will become romantic comedy tropes uh, strung together with, I think, a pretty flimsy, clearly French film-inspired premise. Yeah, maybe that's uh, the issue. I, there, that's are, the, there are that's, really good like rom-com Efron-esque lines where he's like trying to compliment her and he's just like, yeah, you're no frills, no hassle woman. And she's like, I sound like an airline, <laughs> which is a good, a good line. It is. Yeah. Um, it is a good line. And it also has one of my, you know, one of my favorite, like bad, good uh, Hollywood tropes, which is like the mischief music. Like when he starts, goes to put the ad in the paper, Hamlish is like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do one of these. Dun, 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 <laughs> Like somebody's got a little mission that could be right on the line of propriety. Time for mischief music. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep. Oh, boy. 
Um, I don't know. What else did you like? What other stuff did you like about this movie? I feel like I'm teeing off on it. Yeah, I mean, this movie, of course, feels like Barbara Streisand marketing. Yeah. Um, and appeals to... It's the most appealing thing to the least common denominator of, like, why she is a star. Yeah. But at the same time, I felt for it. I think ultimately for me, buddy, this is going to be a bad good. Okay. I think it's like quintessential rom-com bad good. Did not hate, but would never watch again. So I'm going to give it a bad, bad. Bad, bad. Yeah. Next time we get together, Chance. No. <laughs> we can watch The Recruit, and then we can watch Mirror Has Two Two faces. movies I never need to watch again. You will not catch I me. I bet you there's a time in a few years where you're like, I should definitely watch that again. No. Um, you know what I didn't talk about? I did like a little bit of extra homework today where I watched... Uh, I watched 70 Stars Born, which I'd never seen, which is Streisand and Chris Christopherson. Pretty good movie. Definitely like very much like the new Cooper Gaga one. Um, but the thing that's sort of curious about it, especially watching after these Stry- all these Streisand directed movies, is um, that movie would be way better if it was directed by Barbara Streisand. You have a lot of Frank Pearson in sort of like her coming out party, which is doing this sort of like wordy 70s, like Fleetwood Mac meets disco thing where Christofferson sees her for the first time, the Olivia and Rose scene from the new one, basically. And he just kind of like, Pearson just like puts her in a middle shot. And it's so boring. And it's not her angle of her face. Um, And that's like, again, Bradley Cooper is the heir, right, to her and Eastwood and this thing of like, I know how to make myself and Lady Gaga look amazing. I'm going to take the reins visually on this. Um, And it was just kind of weird to go back and see that. Would have been 20% better if she directed it. Interesting. Barbara, what a star you are. Yeah, I'm really happy to to have watched these. I feel like I really need to go back and watch her like, seminal like 1968 1971 movies now makes me want to track down the other members at the top four top five is that a high fidelity joke yeah barbara streisand broke up with it <laughs> i could see in the flashback of your life you makes me like... want to break out the other top five vhs's <laughs> from 1995 what would those be buddy list them off uh barbara streisand the concert uh batman mask of the phantasm um, bed knobs and broomsticks, Jungle Book cartoon, um, and the 1950s Ivanhoe. Holy shit, that's quite a number five. The first three I have watched with you, so I feel very in touch with the totality of your life right now. We watched Jungle Book together. The first three, Jungle Book was the fourth. Oh one. yeah, I go nuts for well all of those movies, but especially bed knobs and broomsticks. Yeah. 1950s Ivanhoe. Who is in that? It's Robert Taylor, Elizabeth Taylor, Joan Fontaine, George Sanders. It's got some really good, um, like midi, like 1950s medieval action sequences that are pretty cartoony, but like pretty compelling at the same time. Well, Thirty thousand extras. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Right. Oh, and there's good jousting in it. That's cool. We should watch that for next time. I like All th- Ivanhoe. I, whether we watch it or not, I would like to celebrate another round of good jousting with you, my friend. I hope you stay well in these, 
in these times and we'll be back. Well, let's tell people what we'll be back with. We're going to come back with a recap of the last four episodes of Devs, the Sci-Fi Alex Garland show on Hulu. We did the first four. Um, and then at the end of the month, we're going to do the detective films of Al Pacino for his 80th birthday. So if you want to watch along, check out Serpico, Heat, Insomnia, and we might get a couple more in there. That'd be great. I can't wait for that. All right, brother. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>